Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Our website, as always, is jmp.princeton.edu. Our Twitter handle is at Madison Program, and you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. With no further ado, let's dig in. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes Season 2. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Our guest today is theologian Carl Truman. Dr. Truman is a professor of historical theology and church history at Grove City College. He is also a former William E. Simon Fellow here at the Madison Program. Most recently, however, he has taken a step out of the purely theological and written a book which helps us understand why we moderns think the way we do, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to the Sexual Revolution. He then published a shorter study version on the same topic, Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. Let's jump into understanding how modern thought came to be. Carl, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Annika. So you've written a shorter version of a very long book, and usually the reason people do that is to get the word out about some topic. Can you crystallize for me what that topic is? Sure. I I think that the topic is this, that so many of the uh, issues that are dominating politics today, particularly what we call identity politics, often we can look at them and think of them as uh, as separate issues. We might think, for example, of the LGBT issue as separate from the abortion issue, as separate from the race issue. Uh, The burden of my books is to to argue that, no, actually all of these manifestations of identity politics have a a common root in a a modern understanding of what it means to be a human self, uh, a human person. So that's the the burden, really, of, of the two books. At the beginning of Strange New World, you define two terms that kind of relate to what you just said, the self and expressive individualism. So briefly, can you give our listeners an overview of what those terms are and why it's so important to understand how their definitions have changed over time? Sure. Well, uh, when it comes to the self, it's it's a term with which we're all very familiar and and we'll often use in what we call a very commonsensical way to refer to our a sphere of self-consciousness. I'm aware that I'm me and not you. You're aware, hopefully, that you're you and not me. We have this this understanding of ourselves as 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 individual thinking beings. When I use the term self in the book, though, I mean something a little different to that. It's not simply the the bare self-consciousness of being an individual existent. It's more to do with how I imagine my place in the world, how I imagine my relationship to the world, how I imagine my relationship to other people, what I see as constituting the good life, what I see as constituting the purpose of my life, how I define myself. Uh, And uh, over time, that has changed. Uh, Many listeners have probably read those long, complicated Russian novels. And of course, one of the problems with reading a Russian novel is it takes you about 150 pages to realize that each character has numerous names and you've got to to grasp which, which character has this range of names. And that's because Russians have a patronymic. They have a, a name like Davidovich, for example, which means son of son of David. And a patronymic tells you something about how the self was understood in that sort of society, that you were defined by who your father was. 
Today, we don't do that. We, we typically, if I said, who are you? Who is Annika? You're probably going to tell me you know, who your parents are. You're going to tell me about what you do for a living or, or, or what hobbies you have or, or how you feel about yourself. And, uh, and the way the modern self has shifted, and I argue in the book, is we've really moved away from sort of external social markers, fixed social markers to understanding ourselves to a great emphasis, a, a priority on and authorization of inner feelings that I am not so much my, my location in place, time relative to other people. I, I am what I think I am, what I feel. Uh, and the other term expressive individualism is closely related to that because what I've really articulated there is the expressive individualist understanding of the self that I am constituted by this inner core of feeling and in order to be authentic I need to be able to give outward expression I need to be able to act outwardly in accordance with that inner core of feeling again could give a a common sense example or, or, or a common example of, of where this makes a difference. Think about news stories. Sometimes you read these tragic news stories where, say, a sports star leaves his wife and runs off with another man. And the news story these days, a hundred years ago, that story would have been, this is a tragedy, a betrayal of the wife. The wife has been betrayed. Today, those stories are often cast as, you know, isn't it great? Uh, this person has finally free to be himself. And I think when you, you look at the difference in reaction between the same scenario but a hundred years apart, you get some idea of what I'm trying to get at in the this shift to the expressive individualist understanding of the self. So kind of on that note, uh, you talk in your book about a trend in which things that were previously behaviors start to be considered as identities. So you kind of already touched on this a bit, but can you explain the difference between those things and how, how we got from A to B and why that makes such a crucial difference in how we view the politics of sexuality today? Sure, and, and sex is the obvious example of this. You know, If you read the Bible or you read any of the, the great uh, mythologies of the ancient world or, or read some of the, the great epics of the medieval world, there's, there's a lot of sex uh, in, in such texts. But sex is always dealt with typically as, as a behavior. Uh, you know, Paris steals Helen, runs off with Helen. Menelaus and uh, Agamemnon are pretty ticked off about this. But what's gone on there is, is an action that has caused a disruption to the society in which they belong. When you move to the modern age, think of a scenario today where uh, you, know, you could have a, a scenario where a 14-year-old boy goes to his mum and dad and says, Mum and Dad, I, I think I'm gay. Well, when you think about what that, that boy is saying there, He's not necessarily making any claim about any behavior he may have engaged in. What he's talking about is the nature and direction and the object of his sexual desire. The difference between, say, the world of the Bible and, and that world is one where sex has moved from being something we think of primarily as an activity to something we think of as being an identity. And the story of how we get from one to the other, it's, it's, it's long and it's complicated, but I think it boils down to an increasing priority placed upon inner feelings. Really from the, the 16th, 17th century onwards, as you have these crises in external authority, of which the Reformation is perhaps the most obvious, uh, there is an inward turn 
Where do you look for certainty? Where do you look for reality? Well, well, we move inward. We start to look at inner psychology. We start to place a great emphasis upon our thoughts and upon our feelings. Uh, that gets sexualized in the late 19th, 30th, 20th century when Sigmund Freud, perhaps, is the most obvious example of this, says, you know, we are constituted by our feelings and desires, but those feelings and desires are foundationally sexual. And with Freud, in his uh, great little book, uh, Three Essays on Sexuality, what Freud does there is he describes the growth from infancy to adulthood uh, of a human being. And each step of the way is defined by the nature and direction of the sexual desire that the individual is feeling. And in that book, what what Freud does is really something very far-reaching. He turns sex from an activity into a desire that constitutes identity. And and once that's done, once that grips the, the popular imagination, of course, sex inevitably becomes political because... When you think about Old Testament sexual codes, or you think about the sexual code that, that Paris breaks when he runs off with, when he steals Helen from Menelaus, uh, he's breaking a, a code there that restricts behavior. But once you start seeing that behavior simply as an outward manifestation of an inner desire, an inner identity, then sexual codes become less about behavior and more about the kind of person that society recognizes as being legitimate. So once the Freudian idea that sex is identity comes to grip the popular imagination, inevitably we get sexual identity politics because sexual codes that lie at the heart of society become codes not about behavior but about who that society recognizes as a legitimate person. I do wonder, because it seems to me that identity politics surrounding race kind of precede those surrounding sex. Does race somehow fit into your metric of how identity politics came to rise? Yes, I I think race is is a good example of another form of identity politics that's, that's taken an interesting shift, really, over the last 40 or 50 years. If you were to go back and look at the writings of Martin Luther King, it's interesting that, that King's work is very much predicated upon the idea that, that all men are equal, that there is such a thing as human nature. And regardless of the color of your skin, everybody is to be treated the same because we're all human beings. When you look at racial politics today, it's, it's more nuanced than that. It's to do with the identity of particular communities. It's not built upon a universal notion of human nature so much as it's built upon the authority, integrity of, of the particular community. And it's often rooted in, in psychological categories as well. When you think much of the focus of, of the race debate at the moment is, is often on language that is used. Uh, uh, much of the focus on race debate of the race debate today draws upon Uh, critical theory. And critical theory emerges from this interesting importation of psychological categories into Marxism in the 1920s and 1930s. Now, critical theory has come a long way since then. But really, modern racial politics operate very much, it seems to me, with, with a psychological notion of oppression, rather than the, the old, much more quantifiable Uh, forms of oppression uh, that segregation uh, represented. And of course the rise of this sort of new segregationism uh, from the side of the black community is interesting from that perspective. 
that we're seeing sort of a return to the old ways, but on new terms, because the community deserves the right to feel good about itself and, and, and set up its own ways of doing things. So over the course of this book, you bring up a whole slew of think- thinkers, more I worry than we will sadly be able to cover in just one hour. But I'm wondering, are there any in particular who you think of as a point of no return? That is to say, are there any of these thinkers who, once we as a society completely embraced their thought, some version of our current identity politics was more or less inevitable? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think I would say the big three, if you like, Freud, we've already talked about. But I think Marx and Nietzsche are also very significant. And what's interesting about Marx and Nietzsche, of course, is in a sense they're, they're far more significant today than they were in their own day. You know, when Marx dies in 1883, uh, Engels gives this, Friedrich Engels, his you know, sponsor and sidekick, gives this speech at Marx's graveside where he says, you know, in 50 years' time, everybody will know the name of this man. Everybody in the world will know the name of this man. And he'd have appeared completely mad in 1883, but 50 years from then, that's 1923. You've already got the Russian Revolution in place at that point. So Marx and then Nietzsche. Nietzsche, I think, lies behind. Michel Foucault, the French thinker, I think is the most cited author in the humanities in the United States of America uh, today. I think that's still the case. Without Nietzsche, you could not have Foucault. So we have these two very interesting thinkers, Marx and Nietzsche, who really set up the play for the modern day. If you want to know where would I see their distinctive contributions as lying, I think both of them are what what has been dubbed masters of suspicion, that they refuse to accept that the way things are has any kind of natural authority. There's always something going on below the surface that's trying to trick you into thinking that this is the way it must be. Uh, whether it's with Nietzsche, a way of making the strong weak, or with Marx, a way of keeping the, the oppressed in their position. But the other things about them, I would say, is this. With, with Marx, uh, Marx politicizes everything. Marx really says all human relations are rooted in economic relations, and therefore all human relations are political. Now, what's interesting is we've abandoned Marx's economics. I don't know anybody who actually holds to to Marx's full-blooded economics anymore. But that notion that all human relations are political relations really does grip the imagination. That's why we have lawsuits about the Boy Scouts and about cake baking and all these kind of things. And Nietzsche's uh, contribution, I think, is Nietzsche sees human nature as a contract. The idea that human beings, simply by virtue of being human, uh, we are beholden to any greater moral metaphysics, moral structure of the universe. Nietzsche thinks that's nonsense. Nietzsche thinks that the idea of human nature really is a, it, it, it's, it's a residue of Christianity. And this is why Nietzsche uh, hates Kant so much. You know, he thinks that Kant has done great work really in getting rid of God, but has then smuggled him back in in order to maintain the moral structure of the universe. And we live very much in a Nietzschean world today because very few people uh, believe that the world has any kind of moral structure, moral shape. Uh, essentially, morality is, is a construct uh, and can therefore be adjusted, demolished, rebuilt, 
as it is useful to the human project. So I want to dwell a little bit more on Marx, uh, because I think people tend to focus on his economic ideas, particularly on the right, because it's sort of an easy victory. The Soviet Union fell, his economics were a failure, ergo everything he thought was a failure. And in fact, as you kind of just said, um, his intellectual legacy has done anything but collapse um, and has kind of trickled down from there. So I'm wondering if you can comment a little on how in our capitalist, totally capitalist society, his thought managed to dissociate itself from from just being an economic strain of thought and why his views didn't collapse and how it is that they managed to be so popularized despite existing in a totally contrary economic system. Yeah, it's an interesting question. In some ways, it touches on debates within Marxist scholarship itself. Uh, I, I think the short story is Marxism... It was never really the unified movement that a lot of people on the right think it was. There are always debates within Marxism between reformists. Can you be a Marxist and see that the capitalist system as reformable, as movable to a kind of democratic socialism? Do you need revolution, etc., etc.? By the time we hit the the 1920s and the 20th century, uh, it's it's becoming clear to to a, 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 a number of Marxist intellectuals that. Uh, the working class is going in an odd direction. The working class is is at best divided between the left and the right. Uh, and in places like Germany, which is you know it's an advanced industrial economy, has a highly developed working class, it's lost a war. It's the perfect context for a classical Marxist revolution, and it doesn't happen. The revolution is defeated, and the working class itself is divided between the parties of the left and an increasingly strident number of nationalist parties are on on the right. And what you have there is a number of Marxist theorists. Uh, probably the, the most sophisticated would be the, the Hungarian thinker George Lukács, who made his name really as a literary critic. Uh, start to wrestle with the question of, of how do we move the working class in a revolutionary direction. Uh, Antonio Gramsci is doing a similar thing in, in Italy in, in the late 1920s and the 1930s. The so-called Frankfurt School under uh, Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno will be doing uh, so in, in, in Germany, then for a while in exile in America and then back in Germany after the fall of, fall of Hitler. What these men do, some of them consciously, and, and in the case of George Lukács, kind of by accident, is they really rediscover themes in the early Marx. We have writings uh, that Marx produced, were never published in his lifetime, uh, written, I think, in 1844, the, the Philosophical and Economic Manuscripts. They were actually published in the Soviet Union, I think, in the 1930s. And this represents an early phase in, in Marx's thinking, where Marx is really interested in the psychology of capitalism and the psychology of the capitalist world. He's coming from a sort of Hegelian, his background is Hegel, but this stuff becomes incredibly useful to Marxists in the mid-20th century who have access to a much more sophisticated psychological vocabulary provided by Freud uh, and his colleagues. And so what you have developing in the middle of the 20th century is an interesting cultural criticism coming from Marxism that looks at the way capitalism shapes thought, how it shapes the way people think about the world. And it sees the solution to the capitalist control as being, we might say, an awakening of consciousness, 
within the working classes. So this is where you get the birth of critical theory, or in the hands of Antonio Gramsci, the, the birth of cultural Marxism. That the secret is to provide critiques of culture that awaken people to the, the hidden uh, oppression that's there but is, is disguised by the consumer economy by the language that's used about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, that's disguised by certain, you know, for example, a Brown v. Board of Education, which is a, a favorite of some critical race theorists, that most of us would look at and say, that was a great move. That was a Brown v. Board of Education laid the groundwork for desegregation. No, the critical theorists would say, no, it, it, was, a, it was a sop. But actually, it was disguising what was really going on. It was disguising an intensification of racial disparities within uh, within the United States. And and so this is where Marx has has proved useful, I think, as as giving birth to a kind of psychological criticism of culture. And that's where where he's most influential today. Uh, you know, if you study humanities at a mainstream university, you're going to be getting a, a form of Marxism, even if your professor has never read Marx he's more than likely to be standing in the shadow of Marx when he deconstructs a text, when he points you to the exploitation that lies behind the text, when he points you to the way women are marginalized or stereotyped in the text. All of that stuff goes back to this tradition of cultural criticism that emerges in the 20s and 30s, rooted in the this rather brilliant but eccentric work of the early Marx before he becomes a much more hardcore Economist. To me, that it's a much more interesting phase of Marx, actually. I found Das Kapital virtually unreadable. But the social and economic manuscripts are fascinating. Well, you're not alone in struggling through Das Kapital. Yes. I think it's, <laughs> it's such an interesting observation that you make that, that Marxists have concluded that in order to be happy, if happiness is the goal, you have to first make yourself unhappy or less satisfied. That's such an interesting point. Yeah, and it goes, of course, Marx, that, that's, that's the broader context of the famous statement about religion is the opium of the people. Marx, Marx ends that paragraph by saying, and therefore the criticism of religion has to be at the center of the political struggle because we have to strip people of their false hopes in order to point them to the true hope. That's fascinating. So... You use sort of interesting language to describe uh, the fusion of Freud and Marx in your book. You call it a shotgun wedding. Can you talk me through why specifically it was a shotgun wedding and, and why yeah. Freud and Marx are such odd bedfellows? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's odd on a number, of, uh, a number of levels. First of all, Freud, uh, and this again is the, the sort of critical theorist pick up on. They don't like this. Freud really operates with a fairly static notion of what it means to be a human being. To be a human being is to have sexual desires. And he's criticized from, um, I think, you know, uh, Wilhelm Reich will criticize him for that. So will Simone de Beauvoir in The Second Sex. See, Freud never asks what historical and material conditions shape sexual desire. Freud, I think, assumes a basic sexual trans-historical sexual nature to humanity. So first of all, there's a lack of what a Marxist, I think, would describe as you know historicism or a lack of historical sensitivity to Freud. He's operating with a pretty static notion of what it means to be a human being. Secondly, Freud himself is a pretty, uh, in many ways, quite a conservative thinker. You know, he has the reputation of being, well, isn't Freud 
talks about sex all the time, isn't he, libertine? Well, not really. Uh, Freud sees sexual codes as being very important because if you don't have them, if you don't have sexual repression, you'll have total chaos. So there's a sense in which he's a very conservative thinker as well. Where he becomes useful to the Marxists is they say, a guy like Wilhelm Reich says, well, Freud is right to point to all of this sexual repression going on at the moment. Uh, and he's helpful in decoding that. The mistake he makes is he thinks that this is the way it has to be. He doesn't realize that actually this is part of the problem. And therefore, you know, Reich makes this move and essentially says if we're going to achieve political, where, where Marx would say, you know, we've got to hit religion in order to precipitate uh, revolution, the, the early Marx. Reich will say we've got to smash the sexual codes in order to precipitate revolution. And he's, Reich and, and the early critical theory guys are particularly concerned with the family because they think the family is an authoritarian unit that teaches kids to obey the Oedipal father figure that they both love and fear. They pick up on Freud's Oedipus complex. And what you've got to do is you have to smash the nuclear family because guess what? Once these kids have grown up blindly obeying the father figure when they leave the home, they look for another tyrannical father figure. Hey, presto, we can give you Adolf Hitler. And that's why the working classes that are often very traditional in terms of their family structure are providing votes and stormtroopers for, for Adolf Hitler. So... One sort of interesting detail from your book that relates to that. In your conclusion, you briefly mention uh, that Reith's grandfather had labored in a concentration camp and that afterwards he remarked that Hitler won in the West. Yeah. Um, and that's just such uh, an interesting and provocative statement. I'm wondering yeah. if you could unpack that for me and, and do you agree with it? Yeah, it's Philip Reefs commenting on his grandfather, making the point that you know uh, his grandfather wanted to be buried in Israel. He did not want to be buried in, in the United States because he felt the United States represented the triumph of Hitler. Now, first of all, what one could say, first of all, only a Jewish person can make that comment. It would be profoundly offensive uh, and trivializing of the Holocaust. But precisely because Reef's uh, family is Jewish and lost people in the Holocaust, he's able to make that comment. What he meant was that, that Hitler, uh, at, at the heart of Nazism, lay an abolition of the notion of human nature. That idea we talked about earlier on where human beings have dignity and are therefore to be treated in a certain way precisely because we all possess a certain intrinsic dignity. Made, of course, from a Jewish and Christian perspective, made in the image of God. It's precisely because Hitler got rid of that as far as Reef is concerned, Reef's grandfather was concerned, that, that he was so evil. And, and Reef would look at the modern West, Reef's grandfather would look at the modern West and say, that's what we see all around us. Uh, the death of human dignity, disrespect everywhere, uh, groups marginalized and despised without that undergirding notion of universal human dignity uh, in some kind of objective and real sense undergirding things. Whether I agree with him, well, I, I certainly wouldn't put it in quite those terms, I think. I mean, there's a, it's a very dramatic and I think not entirely helpful term to put it because it, it has such a strong racial connotation that I think you're bringing in all kinds of stuff. But I would agree with, with Reef on this level that I think a loss of the sense of the sacred, uh, a loss of the sense of any kind of sacred order makes the, uh, 
the social order very difficult to justify. I, I was doing the trigonometry podcast with a couple of guys from the UK last week. They're sort of Joe Rogans of the UK. And they're both atheists. And the first question, one of the first questions they say to me is, yeah, we're both atheists. You're a Christian believer. Do you believe society can be moral uh, without God? And, and I'll give you the answer that I gave to them. My answer was, uh, I, I think it can because it has been. Uh, but I think you, you're really you're setting yourself up for a much harder task and it's much less stable than if you have some kind of uh, sacred order to point to in order to justify your social order. Hmm. Interesting. So to return a little bit to something you alluded to earlier, the death of nuclear family, which is definitely uh, an example of, of the collapse of social order that we're referring to. It's in the news a lot. Mm. Uh, rise in single motherhood, elimination of gender requirements for both parents and children. Um, and one of the prophets of this, who you bring up, and I'll admit I went a little bit down an internet dark hole researching this person, uh, was Shulamith Firestone, who's... Famous, oh, yeah. yeah, famous for calling uh, pregnancy and childbearing barbaric and suggesting that we grow babies artificially rather than giving birth to them. Um, and you say something really interesting about her. Uh, you say that she has the most consistent application of Reichian ideals to a political cause. So I'm yeah. wondering if we could go back a little bit, if you could take us through who was Reich, what did he say? And why is it that he himself and subsequent thinkers weren't applying his ideas consistently? Yeah, well, Wilhelm Reich is an interesting figure. In, 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 his, in his young days, he's associated with Freud. He's a sort of assistant to Freud. But Freud regards him as eccentric and extreme. So that locates him on the Freudian spectrum for you. And he's one of the, the pioneers of fusing Marxism and Freudianism in the late 1920s on into the 30s, uh, wrestling with the issue of how do we explain the fact that the working classes, to put it bluntly, vote against their best interests. They're voting for the nationalists and the fascists and the Nazis. They're voting for the, the bourgeois parties rather than signing up for the proletarian revolution. And there's, a, there's something that the, the, he, he quotes. There's a quotation in one of his works that's fascinating. And he says he doesn't know if this is true, but he said that he read that during the, uh, the, one of the, the workers' strikes, uh, I think in the 1920s, um, the, the striking workers wouldn't tread on the grass in the Berlin parks because there were signs saying, keep off the grass. And he saw this as a kind of, yes, even in their revolution, they're still tugging their forelocks and blindly obedient to, to bourgeois regulations. So he's one of the key men for wrestling with this. How do we wake up the working classes? And his answer there is that the real problem is that Working class families are very strong families. They tend to have strong mothers. More than that, they have strong father figures. And that's where kids are taught to be obedient. The church picks up the mantle a little bit later. Uh, particularly, he's thinking of the Catholic Church here. Yeah, the Catholic Church has this regimented discipline, uh, catechizing, training children. And so by the time they reach adulthood, they're already... You know, Blind obedience to authority is already intuitive to them. So Reich's thinking is, how do we smash this? Well, the way to break it is to break the family, break the bourgeois family. 
Uh, and he's building there on uh, you, you don't have to be a Marxist you can go back to Shelley and Blake and the Romantics and see that there are there's some radical figures there who who have a pretty low opinion of the family Shelley and Blake's case it's because it means you can only sleep with one woman that their their issues are somewhat different to the Reich but the idea that the 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 nuclear family is unnatural and a source of social deprivation and oppression runs deep in in elite Western intellectual circles uh, from before Reich, but Reich and company are the men who they make, if you like, a sort of a pseudo science out of this. He's interestingly inconsistent, though, because one of the the points I draw in the book is he argues that sexual morality is purely conditioned by the the economic structure of society. The sexual morality that you have uh, in the West in the 1930s simply serves the economic interests of the bourgeoisie, the, the, the factory owners. But then he deals with pedophilia. He makes a comment that, of course, it would be inappropriate for an adult to have sex with a, with, with a child. Uh, but he never justifies that claim. It's, kind of, it's self-evident that that's wrong. Well, the answer, the question I want to raise with him is, Maybe it's only self-evident because your intuitions have been shaped by the bourgeois world in which you grew up. He'd probably respond, well, children can't consent, to which I would might respond, well, maybe the principle of consent is just a structure of the bourgeois world in which you, you've grown up. I think what we're seeing with later figures is they push Reich's thinking more consistently. I'm just reading a wonderful book by uh, Abigail Favale, uh, the genesis of gender and she cites there a, a letter I said, sent to one of the elite Paris newspapers um, where Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, all the great intellectual left-wing intellectuals of the day calling for the release of pedophiles from prison uh, and demanding contraceptions for minors so they can sleep with adults and uh, it, it's interesting that that left-wing trajectory really does have a strong sexual dimension to it and pushes against the age of consent and I would say ultimately pushes against the protection of children. Firestone, that, that's not so much her beef. I don't think the sex with minors is her thing. With her, it's, it's childbirth. What's interesting about her, of course, is when she dies, I think in Manhattan, her body isn't discovered for some time until the smell starts to permeate neighboring apartments. Uh, I say to the students here, isn't it interesting that a person who argued for a radically autonomous view of human nature, where all human relations are ultimately contractual, not natural, dies all alone and nobody notices she's gone until the smell of her rotting corpse alerts people. Uh, that's a tragic end, but there is a certain ironic appropriateness to that as well. Yeah, that is also a, an anecdote that just really stuck with me. Um, and it, it brings to mind a trend that I've noticed among a lot of these thinkers, which is the insane. Uh, because she and Nietzsche and sort of many others, some of, you know, many of whom you bring up some of these examples, um, but many of them kind of go crazy in the later parts of their yeah. life. And Shulamith Firestone yeah. was in and out of the psych ward, and she had written this very influential, very fiery book when she was young and essentially spent the rest of her life kind of in and out of depression and schizophrenia. 
And Wil- Wilhelm Reich uh, ends his days in prison in Pennsylvania on a fraud rap, uh, engaging in UFO conspiracy theories. You know, Reich, Reich descends into a form of delusional madness as well. So I'm wondering, I mean, people say that just philosophers go insane. So am I wrong in, in drawing the parallel between insanity and this kind of particular um, individualistic strain of thought? Um, and I also, I sort of wonder, because society, it's not like we're not aware that, that we follow, say, Nietzsche very closely. I mean, at least mm. we're somewhat aware of it. And yet... The fact that he eventually went insane is not considered a reason not to be a disciple of, of his thought. Right, right. And I kind of wonder if you have any thoughts on that, on why it is that people are so willing to take life advice from people who, who went crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Well, of course, Nietzsche was arguably not always crazy. Uh, and, uh, you know, with, with, with him, there, there's certainly one theory is that it was the result of syphilis contracted as a younger man that ultimately just ate away at his brain. Brain. Um, so there's a certain tragedy to, to Nietzsche's life. And a lot of philosophers don't go, you know, we, there are plenty of examples of philosophers of these schools, Sartre, de Beauvoir, they die with all of their faculties. I do think, though, I, I, I might not, uh, two things come to mind. One, I do think that with many of the, the radical philosophers, uh, Reich, uh, Firestone would be good examples they're driven, it seems to me, by anger. And I do think that anger, to, to use sort of almost theological language, anger and bitterness can consume the soul. We see this on both right and left in our society at the moment, that anger and bitterness can drive perfectly sane people to hold very crazy positions. And and I do wonder if that, you know, does the anger create the madness or does the madness provide fertile soil for the anger? It's, it could be a chicken and egg thing. But I do think that, and that's why I, 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 I learned a lot my year on the Madison program, just from observing the general cheerfulness of Robert George. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's a kind of, yeah, that's, that's what I want to be. I, I want to be indignant about the right things, but I never want to lose my joy for life, my, my joie de vivre. So uh, I say to students, maybe part of the answer to the problem of life is sitting on your deck, having a glass of wine with friends, that, that joie de vivre. So I, I do think there's a warning there. Uh, taking, I, I do think that critical theory is helpful on this front, that critical theorists themselves should not be exempt from their own theories. Uh, it seems to me there is a connection between Michel Foucault's view of truth and his own penchant for having sex with underage boys. I'm not sure that you can... He would not grant... And, and I suspect if he was on this podcast, if he was still alive on this podcast now, he might well be honest enough to say, sure, you know, you got me, man. Uh, all claims to truth are really bids for power, etc., etc. Uh, I do think the way we read these radicals, sometimes we can use their own tools against themselves. Uh, because I do think that all of us, uh, you know, if, if postmodern critical theory makes, makes any sound points, one of them is that we're all motivated by more than just the arguments we put forward. Uh, so I, I, I think you could be on to something, and I think that means that it behooves us to, to think 
critically about all of the people uh, that we read. And, you know, I'm a Christian, of course. It should come naturally to the Christian, I think, to be suspicious about the products, the crooked products of fallen humanity, however attractive they may appear to be. That transitions really well uh, to the next kind of slew of questions I was hoping to ask you. Uh, because one of the things I love so much about your work is that you're a Protestant, Christian Protestant thinker, and you're working in a space uh, which, in my experience, is pretty dominated by Catholic thinkers. And to my Catholic listeners, yeah. don't worry, if we're going to spend, spend plenty of time this season discussing Catholic perspectives as well. Uh, but Carl, I really want to press you on a few issues that make your thought as a Protestant distinctive. Um, and so first... As a Protestant, uh, one thing that I commonly encounter is a criticism of the history of Protestantism, specifically Protestant splintering into many, many factions. And it really galvanizes a lot of Catholics, and people view it as playing pretty directly into our current identity politics and into the idea that people can sort of pick whatever they want among uh, you know, a slew of different identities without being bound to anything eternal. So I'm wondering... Like, I mean, one, if you think that's a fair assessment, if you think Protestantism, its history really has played into this. And two, as a Protestant, what, what your response to that would be? Yeah, well, I think on, on one level, it's a sort of fair cop. I, I think the splintering of Protestantism is is very sad. And it's it's very much the case that, that Protestants typically don't take the unity of the church as seriously as they should. I think when Jesus prays that his people, the church, will be one, he's not talking about some low-grade, cheap, spiritual unity. Uh, if, you probably can't see me doing the square uh, scare uh, quotes around spiritual unity there, but we, we can sit very lightly on church unity, and I think, I think that's a fair cop. I, I think my, my response would be, yeah, but Catholicism has its problems too. Uh, not least the fact that the vast majority of Catholics don't take their faith seriously. Uh, uh, I was pastor of a church where I would say probably half, probably more than half the people that came to my church, they'd grown up Catholics. And they'd abandoned their church because they didn't think that the local priest took the Bible seriously. Uh, when I, I look at uh, you know, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, etc., etc., so-called devout Catholics thinking and behaving the way they do, as a Protestant, I'm inclined to say, okay, we got our problems, but you got your problems too. And there's a case that you pay your money, you know, which problems are you prepared to live with, which problems are you not prepared to live with. So I, I, I think for me, that, and, and also the if if spiritual unity is cheap for Protestants. I think sacramental unity is cheap for Catholics. You know, we're all, oh yes, there are all these civil wars going in Catholicism, but it's okay because we have this sacramental unity. Well, I think sacramental unity should manifest itself in more than just the hierarchy in the sacraments. Again, to, to push back, say, okay, I think Protestants need to engage in serious self-examination relative to Christ's prayer about the unity of the church. But I think Catholics need to engage in some heart searching as well, because just having a unified hierarchy in the sacraments, I don't think that really gives a full account of what Christ is pointing to either. In other words, it's a total mess. <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> you, a mess, you, yeah. <laughs> you, 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 choo you choose your mess and you live with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really true. It, it's such an interesting observation because... 
on the one hand, particularly in the Ivy League, as I'm sure you're aware, so many people to convert convert to Catholicism. Yeah. But on the other hand, like nationally, I think particularly in these less hyper academic circles, I think it's sort of yeah. the opposite. Like I run into people all the time. If, I mean, just people at the store, people at random places. And if they are still religious, usually they're Catholic deconverts to Protestantism. And so it's such an odd trend that it's kind of taken these two routes among different kind of social strata. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you're looking for a, a form of Christianity that gives you deep philosophical social teaching and a good place to engage the great intellectual issues, it's sort of there, ready-made for you in Catholicism. Uh, Protestantism, we have our Calvins and our Luthers, but we don't have a Thomas Aquinas. We don't have anybody so comprehensive. Um, but on the other hand, if, if you want to... to I, I spoke at the Napa conference last year, and I, I gave a talk on preaching. Uh, and, and I would say, you know, if, if, you want, if you want to go to and hear somebody preach in a passionate way that points you to Christ and helps you to live in your ordinary life, working on the shop floor or something, then Protestants really set the, uh, the pace on that. So again, you, you pay your money, you take your choice. Most of the people I deal with have converted from one to the other, have converted from Protestantism to Catholicism, but that's because I mix in academic circles. In my church in Philadelphia, I probably had 25, 30 people who grew up as Catholics who came to my church, not because they'd wrestled deeply with the issue of the papacy, but because they were looking for a church where the Bible was taken seriously and was taught clearly. Yeah, that really parallels my personal experience, kind of having spent a lot of time in both kinds of services. Um, And on that note... So you talk in the really excellent conclusion uh, to the longer version of your book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Um, You briefly kind of mention that you think Protestants need to embrace natural law. And I'm wondering if you can talk me through this, uh, because at least Catholic natural law theory, as I understand it, comes directly through Aristotle, who says that all humans desire the good, which more or less is the direct opposite of total depravity. And as a Presbyterian, <laughs> I'm sure you have yeah, thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say there's, there's a great rebe- rejection of natural law in Protestantism. I think it's, it's beginning to shift. Uh, but that's really due to, I, I think, deviant moves that are made in the 19th and 20th century. Uh, a number of influential theologians, uh, Karl Barth would be perhaps the most prominent in more conservative quarters. We have somebody like Cornelius Van Til. Uh, who reject natural law. And in doing so, they're actually rejecting what was a big part of Protestantism in the 16th, 17th centuries. I I don't think there's any debate now that mainstream Protestant or Reformed, I'm speaking here for Reformed Protestantism, not Lutheran, Baptist, Evangelical. In Reformed Protestantism, There is a strong natural law tradition. Now, it's not an unqualified endorsement of of the Middle Ages, but it's it's an assertion, really, that the world has a natural moral, given moral structure, uh, that human beings have an intuitive understanding of that moral structure, even if they choose to defy it. Uh, And I think that can be scripturally justified. Uh, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Uh, it seems very clear that the Bible teaches that God didn't create the world as just stuff over that which he then arbitrarily decreed certain 
moral structures, there is a moral integrity uh, to the world as created that is given in the very creation. Uh, and I think this is, it's very important for Protestantism to recover this. It's interesting, a number of people said that they'd had reading groups on my book in their Protestant churches. He said, and everybody was tracking until you got to that last bit. And as soon as we started natural law, boom, everything was, you know, are you teaching rationalism or human autonomy? No. Um, natural law for me means that, the, as it did for the 17th century Protestants, the world has a moral shape and we all intuitively understand that. Um, that's why even most criminal, you know, you, you're a pretty debased form of criminal if you don't know the difference between right and wrong. Uh, that sort of person is typically regarded as unfit to stand trial. Uh, and where natural law, I think, is useful today is we have, for many generations, we could get away with that natural law because the, the intuitions of the wider world tracked pretty much with biblical morality. It was assumed that adultery was wrong. It was assumed that marriage was between one man and one woman. Uh, it was assumed that human beings would not flourish if they were having homosexual sex with each other. Uh, we never had to justify Christian teaching uh, because it was never really questioned at that surface level in the broader culture. We now have a rising generation to which you, Annika, belong, where these things are no longer self-evident. They're not the true intuitions of our culture. And where I think natural law is first and foremost important is in helping young Christian people understand why the Bible teaches what it does. When I kids come to my office in Grove and say, you know, Truman, what does you know, the Bible teach about divorce? Or what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? I can point them to relevant Bible texts. And you know, they're good Christians. The Bible is authoritative. That's enough. Except I know at the back of their mind they're thinking, but does the Bible teach that because God is just mean and doesn't want my gay friends to be happy or wants that person to be stuck in a marriage where there's been no adultery and no abuse, but the couple, they just don't love each other anymore? Is that why God teaches those things? That's where I think natural law can be helpful because what I do in those circumstances, for example, I point the kids towards the t statistics of... Uh, uh, life expectancy um, relative to uh, gay male lifestyle. Uh, I can point the kids to uh, uh, the whether whether children from broken marriages flourish in comparison to their peers who grow up in in loving homes where mum and dad stay together. And then you begin to say, well, yeah, actually, the Bible teaches these things because. That's actually the way the world is. The world works best when we operate along uh, these guidelines. So I, I think natural law is something we, we should recover first and foremost for the way we operate really in the, in the sort of pedagogical environment of the church. Hopefully we can also deploy it in the public square. But I think its, it's primary reference for us is in the catechizing of the church at this point. Do you think, because it seems to me that when, certainly when Catholics talk about natural law, they specifically mean kind of the whole body of works of St. Thomas Aquinas. Do you think that, that Protestants, when you say Protestants should embrace natural law, that, that they should embrace wholesale Thomas Aquinas or parts of Thomas Aquinas? or Because he's just not a thinker who I see discussed very much in Protestant circles, and yet his name is so synonymous with natural yeah. law. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think Th- Tom. I would deal with Thomas. I would deal with all theologians. I would deal with Calvin. Uh, you, you, you can read him. I think you can always benefit from Thomas because even where I think he's wrong, it's sometimes you learn a lot from seeing a great mind simply were and it forces you to sharpen your own position if you happen to to disagree with him so i would say first of all definitely worth reading do i think it should be adopted wholesale well if a protestant adopted aquinas wholesale they'd become a roman catholic of course so i'm going to say no no not quite wholesale but uh, i would say where where do i find thomas most helpful certainly in very strictly theological areas i find his doctrine of god and his christology for example uh, to be very very pungent very comprehensive very very compelling uh, on the issue of natural law and on the virtues i think the stuff there that the protestants don't typically have that we can helpfully benefit from it's very interesting that that when Aquinas's treatments of the virtues is picked up in Protestant theology, it tends to be stuck under the category of law. And that's a sort of a structural shift, but it has material implications. And I'm very encouraged by the work of, say, a guy like Keith Stanglin uh, in Austin, who's working on a, a recovery for Protestantism of, of virtue ethics. And I think there's something there that... Because if you look back at the 17th century guys, they've sort of got it. John Owen, one of my guys that I studied, talks about habits uh, and the idea of, 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 of the virtues. is going to become more and more important as the world out there gets more and more confusing and new moral questions get thrown up with, with terrifying uh, rapidity. Having a, a, a virtuous character is going to be critical in helping us to respond to some of these uh, these issues in a wise and Christian way. So Aquinas on the virtues, I think, very important too. So you uh, begin the, well, you call it the prologue, but really it's the epilogue of, uh, <laughs> of your, of, again, the longer version of your book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, with a quote that I just love. And you say, it should be the Christian's natural state to feel that the times are out of joint and that we do not truly belong here. Um, and that statement contrasts so much with other thinkers, particularly, dare I name call, Catholic integralists who take a very utopian approach to how modern yeah. and political life should conform to our faith rather than vice versa. So I'm wondering, well, first, what is it about Christians that you, allows you to make that statement that means that it's so difficult for us to be truly in place and second, that given that it's your view that we can't truly conform the world to us, what should be our goal in kind of a political economy right. sense? Yeah, well, I'm very much an Augustinian on that front. And I, I, I mean, a couple of things. I think you, you ask what, what makes you hold the position you do as opposed to sort of integralism or on the Protestant side, a kind of theonomic position. Yeah, it sounds like a very simple fundamentalist answer. as well as the, the teaching of the Bible. I mean, when you read the New Testament, the vision of the New Testament church that one finds in the book of Acts and then in the letters of Paul and indeed in the teachings of Jesus is is not of a church that is dominating culture it's of a church that is a culture within the larger culture and is i would say an exile or pilgrim culture uh, peter talks about that we're pilgrims we're, we're exiles and i think that that really has to be a model 
uh, of how we think about uh, ourselves in this world. I, I can understand integralism and uh, uh, theonomy on, on, on this level. I think that, uh, and, 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 uh, and the sort of the general evangelical response to what's going on in, in America at the moment, particularly I think for Protestants, maybe less so for Catholics, uh, I pick up in America that there's a there's a, a deep sense that the country belonged to them and it's being stolen from them. Uh, I grew up, I cut my teeth as a Christian in Britain, which when I was growing up was already pretty secular. The church was already pretty marginalized. So I've come to America. I've never had that sense. Uh, uh, but I can understand why people who feel that something's being stolen from them get anger, uh, get angry. The question is, I think we have to ask ourselves, is did it truly ever belong to you? And that's where I go to Augustine. And particularly, I think, Book 19 of Augustine's City of God, it's a, it's a, a section of the City of God that every Christian should read every year before they go to vote in an election, I think. Because it's a good reminder that it's important to be involved in the civic process. We share many loves with our non-Christian neighbors. Uh, but if we're looking for a Christian utopia here on earth, we're not going to find it. Even the heavenly city here on earth is a right old mixed bag, let alone the earthly city. Uh, so I, I would say to, to Christian brothers and sisters who are tempted by integralism or, or theonomy, uh, I, I admire your ambition. We all want to see a world that where, where everybody honors Christian values and, and society is organized along those lines. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. You know, the best shot was the Middle Ages in Europe. And that crumbled and fell, partly because of the corruption of the heavenly city here on earth. We need to be much more modest in our ambitions. And we need to do what Paul does. Paul says, you know, focus your mind on things that are above. Right of the Hebrews talks about, you know, the, the heroes of Hebrews 11. This wasn't their country. They were looking for a better country. And he's not talking about the earthly country there. He's talking about the heavenly city. So I think that, that, that a good dose of biblical theology could correct some of the... Uh, I, I, I think the, the intellectual abstractions that are now driving a lot of the, the Christian approach to politics we see around us. Well, Carl, that is a stirring last statement and a great note to end on. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. And to our listeners, Carl's most recent book is called A Strange New World, and I would highly recommend it. It's one of my, by far one of my favorite books I've read this year. Uh, so, Carl, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a joy having you on the show. It's been great to be and great to be back in touch with the, the James Madison program as well. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. Dr. Carl Truman on his two recent books, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self and the shorter study version, Strange New World. I can't recommend enough that you go check one of these books out. They are not only very readable, but incredibly helpful, at least they were to me, in understanding not only how, but why modern thought has come to revolve so much around identity. Thank you so much for joining us, and I'll see you next time here on Madison's Notes.